Arising out of the alternative music capital of North America, Acceptance from Seattle, Washington are a pop-punk band whose debut 2005 record Phantoms captivated emo fans all over the world. Phantoms would be their first and only release on a major label, having signed to Columbia Records after departing the independent label, The Militia Group. Though subsequently reforming over a decade later, the folklore surrounding Acceptance's breakup as well as their steep rise and fall led to one of the greatest what-ifs of our beloved emo scene. Before the reality of label interference, online leaks and relationship breakdowns could overshadow their initial success, Acceptance were touted to be the next major crossover artist from an era that saw bands like Fall Out Boy, Paramore and My Chemical Romance all enter the mainstream and stay there. So what happened to Acceptance? And why, after an impressively well-crafted first album, did they so quickly disband? I'm Paul, alongside me is Nick, and this is Violence and Sunshine. Today, we will be exploring Phantoms by Acceptance. I don't know about you, but I had a much nicer week this week listening to Acceptance than I did listening to Senses Fail last week. Oh, dude, like chalk and cheese, hey, <laughs> like... uh yeah, last week we yeah we touched on quite a bit. It was was a big struggle to go back and and listen to um, early Senses Fail albums, but um, yeah, this week was super pleasant. What a just what a lovely album. Uh, I remember you know we listened we listened to a lot of uh, bands when we were of this age that my parents couldn't handle. Like if I put them on in the car or around the house, it was like you know turn that shit off. We <laughs> we can't have that. But if you put on Phantoms, there was no issues. It might have been a bit more like, oh, who's this? Oh, who are you playing there? They sound all right. So, um, yeah, it's it's it was a good crossover album. It sat in the middle of kind of emo and mainstream, um, still had, you know, definitely, you know, tones and sounds that we were very familiar with across other emo and screamo bands, but just a, a far more mature kind of polished um, rock band really yeah well I went back so they had two EPs before Phantoms one in 2001 that I never even knew about and then again in 2003 and that was the one that really got the attention of kind of fans and the labels but even listening back to that it doesn't have the staying power that Phantoms does so I remember it existing I didn't even listen to it at the time and going back this week with the exception of the one or two songs re-recorded for Phantoms I didn't actually, um, it didn't resonate with me. I didn't enjoy listening to it. But Phantoms, what a hyped album. And Take Cover was a song that, even if people didn't know the album or the band, that song was everywhere. It, it was everywhere. I think <clears throat> I think that, that 2003 EP was, was called uh, Black Lines to Battlefield. That's the so, one. <laughs> you know, it, even that in itself is, is just a very kind of, emo um emo record well ep name so um yeah to come from that into then something phantoms you know here we are oh, we, we, we've, we, yeah we've arrived we've arrived um but uh yeah i had a bit of a listen to to the early release and as i as i said a little bit surprising that that um that you know that was what kind of initially put them you know in front of record labels or or as a potential band that could you know, take that next step because it it's not great. It's it's kind of a bit boring and a bit um, you know, it's just kind of nothing. But maybe that's what they needed. You know, a band that could be molded uh, in to fit with more of a mainstream 
rock emo sound as opposed to a band that was very set in its sound and and way they looked and everything already um this was a band that potentially you know had the the initial kind of building blocks to be that sort of band and just needed a a push in the right direction or, or a bit more help from from record labels and and managers to to go there and that was probably the era the era where there was a bit of room to move in that regard like if you weren't perfect yet you weren't polished yet someone could help you get there. I imagine now it's harder to release something that isn't perfect, that isn't polished and still get a second chance. So perhaps it, they were benefited from the times knowing that, hey, there's still some room to improve here. We see the potential and that's what we're signing. We're not signing this finished product. But I still remember seeing the permanent music video and that was probably the first. It's hard to tell whether I heard Take Cover or Permanent first because they're both kind of different songs. Take Cover being more of a pop crossover and Permanent being a bit more of a typical punk song. But the music video was one of those classics. And you've mentioned it before, that like tour compilation video where like people are stage yeah, diving. Yeah, that's it. Look at us being zany on the bus. And that really <laughs> stood out to me because those music videos were everywhere from the early 2000s. I'm glad that I heard um, Permanent and saw the video uh, well after Phantom's release, actually, because uh, as you said, it's not really a song that fits in with the likes of Take Cover and some of the more, um, you know, edgier, more um, whimsical songs that are on there with lots of keys and synth and things like that. It, it is more you're just your straight up punk rock song. And I reckon if I heard that and then someone said, hey, they actually released this album Phantoms, it's got that song on it you might be into, I'd be like, eh, you know, I might take it or leave it because it, it was just kind of, I've sort of heard this before, but I'm glad that I got Phantoms was, was uh, you know, put to me first and could listen to that album in its entirety, which includes Permanent on it. But as a whole album, it's definitely, I found that it's definitely more that sound that sits along, like more like your Jimmy Eat World, your Dashboard Confessional, Amberlin. Like it's this mature rock, very polished um, sound, you know, the use of keys and synths throughout it where they actually make the songs um, better as opposed to just, you know, dropping keys in to be emo, which was very common yes. for bands. Just go, hey, look, here's this little, you know, keyboard bit in our song. We're cool. Yeah, like that, that's a musician who's actually, you know, writing songs around, um, you know, piano. And then off that is, you know, the buildup of other instruments around it. But sometimes piano even being like take cover, for example, you know, the start of that song, as soon as the album launches, that that's piano. That was written on on piano and it plays throughout the entire song it's kind of the bones of that song whereas yeah your band's more like senses fail and you know even we <laughs> we we uh we dabbled in it in one of our we sure bands when we were young just grabbed the uh the small keyboard luckily it had the right outputs where we could you know plug it through the the pa system but it was awful keyboard sound um, we run with it anyway. <laughs> Very clunky. We had some fun with it, and but I, I, I've always wondered why. Always wondered why, like emo and screamo bands, had this kind of draw towards wanting some some keys, some piano in their songs, just to make them a little little moodier. I guess. Well, I know why like, we did it, and that was to seem like we were better musicians or like more diverse musicians. It was like, yeah, how, yeah. How can we showcase that we're different by doing that same different <laughs> thing that everyone else is doing? It's funny, like that. Like at the moment, yeah. Like in the moment, so you you really feel like you are um, unique and being edgy and cool. And hey, look at us, we're doing this, and no one else is. And then you take a step back or, or look back, like we are now, and you're just like, hang on, 
fucking everyone was doing this shit, man, and it didn't really make a difference for many bands. But then a band like Acceptance was able to show you, hey, this is how this is how you use this instrument properly, guys. This is how you can write some really cool rock songs, including piano and synth, and yeah. Fantastic. Well, I, I looked into kind of who the contributor was on that record because none of the official members played piano or keys, and it was their producer Aaron Sprinkle, who has is quite a reputable, I think, Seattle-based producer who has popped up on a lot of you know kind of records that we enjoy. You know, there's he's worked with the Almost, Anne Boleyn, Emery. There's that extra person that brings that spark. And that's what a really good producer does. So he didn't just engineer this record, but also contributed one of the core components to it. And I think without that sixth member, it wouldn't have necessarily had that same kind of appeal with those piano parts and that extra little fairy dust he sprinkled all across the record. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the other, other bands at the time he worked with, because you can lump a lot of those bands in together with having a similar sound. You know, they were generally more melodic rock, more melodic emo bands. And you got to wonder there, the common trend across all those bands is, is this producer. So, you know, he potentially played a much bigger part in the sound of those bands and putting out a more melodic version of emo, a more melodic version of rock um, at the time, which was which became more popular. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of bands you mentioned there that, that kind of fit into that genre, but more like up until 2005, you know, the earlier, like we're talking about since our last week, a bit, a little bit earlier, some of their stuff, you know, it was pretty just straight up punk, screamo punk stuff, you know, no frills, you know, no tricks, no, no bells and whistles, which is, is fantastic in its own right and definitely has a place. Um, but these, these bands and especially acceptance seem to be more of a, a muso band. You know, these, these people were really good at their instruments they, they were polished, they put together tight live sets, they put together a very tight album, maybe, though, at the expense of some of that flair, though. Like, I'm not sure about you, but just not an overly exciting band. You know, I don't know, I don't know the names of any of the members. None of them really stand out. Um, they all kind of just sort of dressed and looked a bit the same. Um, well, for yeah, better or worse, that era depended on kind of charismatic front people or someone you could attach to, you know, Fallout Boy had Pete Wentz, who even though he was the bass player, was the personality of that band. Census Fail had Buddy Nielsen, that whether you like the music or not, that guy is something you know to look at. Bring Me the Horizon with Ollie Sykes, Paramore with Hayley Williams. People want someone to attach to. People want to stand over these people and have someone stand out. And I think they were a band that let the music speak for itself but um, it wasn't necessarily an era where that was enough for fans. Yeah, that's it. And, and maybe that played into part of why they didn't stick around for very long. You know, they're not necessarily bringing the masses through the door. You know, some of the, some of the front people or even <laughs> bass players in Pete Wenz's, you know, Lead um, bass player case, Pete Wenz. Lead bass player. Um, you know, these people would, would put bums on seats. You know, you would go to watch these people perform or you would be intrigued as to how they were going to come across in the next film clip that dropped or as, as, as things moved on. And even we started to get into social media, what were these people saying in interviews? What were they putting out there on social media? They were interesting people that even though some of them had, you know, trials and tribulations and different things like that, you were, you were intrigued by that. Like I can't think of anything that any member of acceptance did 
to make you intrigued to watch them other than the music. The music stood up. Outside of the music, though, you know, what was really all that appealing about them? And, and maybe that was maybe that was part of the reason why it, it ultimately wasn't enough. And and they they released Phantoms and then kind of went off into the wilderness. And I know there's a lot lot more to that story that we're, we're going to touch on later. Before we talk about our favourite songs, um, I want to just share a contribution we got here from a listener. And this is from Darcy. And it is... I remember Channel V, when Channel V was actually worthwhile, had a late night punk emo show. Can't remember what it was called, but it was definitely something cheesy. Anyway, they played the video for Permanent, and I just remember loving that it had some grit, but also great melody. Then that record became a constant for pretty much every band I played in. Holy moly, and then a love heart emoji. So so what was your kind of favorite track, or what were some of your favorite tracks on the album? Yeah, for me, it's... it's, So... That I don't, I never know quite how to how to say it, but ad astra per aspera, I may be getting close to how how it's the interlude in the in <laughs> the interlude in the middle of the album that also showcases I think how how much this album was more about the music and the people behind it were obviously interested and good enough at their instruments to put together an interlude in the middle of their album that that stands up. You know, it's not just there for the sake of it. It's really cool and complex. I, I always wondered, however, potentially if they continue through like a longer intro then into another three-minute song with with vocals laid over the top and that could it could have it been its own amazing song on the album as opposed to uh, just an interlude. But then it does roll into um, This Conversation Is Over, which is my favourite song outside of the interlude. It is my favourite song um, on the album. It showcases all the all the amazing things on that album. You know, it's it's got light in the dark, it's melodic, it's rocky. Um, it's it sums up the sound of that album perfectly for me. The the run from the interlude into um, this conversation is over. So just that that middle aspect of the album is is perfect. I found it really tough to choose. Like Take Cover was the first song I heard, and um, you know some of our listeners have asked why don't we play parts of the music in in the podcast and there's very strict copyright laws around that and it can affect the way your show gets distributed and whether it's even allowed to still exist. But one day I was just walking down the street in Melbourne, happened to walk into a venue and just happened to be recording on my phone. And just at that very time, (laughs) acceptance uh, were there just playing. And I mean, I just accidentally recorded and I guess I'm about to accidentally play this little clip of take cover now. So no copyright issues here. This is an accident. the feels <laughs> yeah man it just makes you feel something doesn't it and there's just nothing quite like it it's lyrically it's quite simple you know basic rhyming basic lyrics but just amazing melody great vocal harmonies in there and even in that live performance you can still hear those things coming through so that's that's kind of my solid favorite followed very closely by in too far that's got just again vocal harmony that i love and also lead guitar that I really like as well. So 
in too far, take cover, add Astra per Aspra, and this <laughs> conversation is over. There's our top four. If you're going to go listen to them, just listen to the whole record. You're probably going to like all of it. Yeah, it, it's a bit like, you know, when we're talking about the Paramore episode and all we know is falling. Like, it's kind of just good from start to finish. It's something you do listen to as the full album because there's no real weak points. And although we've been able to pick out a couple of standouts for us, you could ask a hundred other people and they would be able to put one or two other different songs off the album as their favorites, because it, it there's, yeah, there's just not really any weak part in the album. It flows from, from start to finish um, and take up being the opening track and to, to hear a little live snippet of it there. You, you can see why that had record labels excited about this could be a band like fallout boy or paramore or my cam or any other of the the bands that were able to cross over into the mainstream you know locally in australia you know kiss chasey comes to mind with that take cover song kiss chasey were a, a band that that definitely tried to more push into the mainstream far more of a, a pop punk band but that kind of that kind of like stop start chuggy guitar but with very sweet harmonized vocals over the top is is very much what what they were going for and it worked for them they were a, a video hits band for a little while and that doo-doos and what oh song has that similar kind of like you know driving guitar in the chorus but but driving but bouncy like how guitar can kind of be crunchy and heavy but also poppy that's a really cool comparison there and that's the song i'm going to go and listen to once we're done with this <laughs> But it's obvious that Acceptance left a lasting impression on not just us, but also a significant amount of our friends. And here's our good friend Mike talking about what he remembers about Phantoms. I remember the first thing that caught my attention about listening to Phantoms was probably the production and just how slick and crisp every detail sounded and how poppy and catchy it was. And I think um, the opening track take cover is probably a pretty prime example of this, I feel. That fluttery little piano intro and seeing Slick sitting behind the back of the chorus and programmed drums and multiple vocal hooks that latched onto your brain. I think it was a, a pretty good song to show newcomers to the emo universe. Super fun and accessible and catchy and still had enough cool guitar work to keep me interested though. Um, and super tight drumming, almost inhuman. Um, and yeah, these guys were just a really efficient pop rock group. And I think um, this record's done that up into a really neat and tidy little package. Yeah, so Phantoms was, was clearly a profound record for a lot of people. Um, but just over a year after the record's release, the band was over. Um, so why do you think they broke up so quickly? So... They released Phantoms in April 2005, and by August 2006, the band was done. And it was basically a perfect storm of things going wrong for them. I don't think you could have kind of a better case study for a band signed for their potential, releasing or recording and then releasing an incredibly well-crafted album, and then just completely disappearing, you know, almost immediately. And one of the first things that went wrong for them was... The record leaked nine months before it was released. So they set wow, their April wow. 2005 date. It was out at the tail end of 2004. And without even thinking about it, that's probably when we had it. We would have got it from a leak. It, There's no way we bought it. Um, and no, I don't. it's not an album that I don't think would have been on a lot of shelves to buy. It would have definitely been a leaked version that we uh, wrapped our ears around. 
I'd say we were probably getting close to done with it and wanting a new record by the time it actually was released. Like we listened to that record so much and our friends listened to it so much and they sold 75,000 records, which is a lot for a band in this scene. But you can't help but feel that if that record hadn't have leaked nine months beforehand, that it could have actually launched them a little bit further and perhaps not contributed to their demise the way it seems to have. Yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder why... You know, given that it did leak so early, you know, I wonder why the record label didn't say, "All right, we've got to we've got to move this release date earlier." Like, we've we've got to move the tour earlier. We've just got to do everything we can to make it seem like you know this was leaked, but it's just a teaser, and now here it is in its in its entirety, and here's a tour and everything and all the promo to go with it. But to wait nine months, like they would have known it leaked. You know, these 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 record labels and managers and things are switched on. They would have their their finger on the pulse. So I wonder, yeah, I wonder the decision making behind no, let's just stick to our original dates. That's when we're ready for it to come out. That's when all the hard work we've put in behind the scenes is ready. Who cares that it leaked? You know, we'll wait like nine, nine months. As you said, that was long enough for us to be, yeah, we're over this now. Like, uh, when, when's some new shit coming out? Yeah. And I, and it's obvious that their record label were difficult the entire time. They were signed to Columbia Records, which was a major record label, or is a major record label, and it was really difficult for a band that had come from an indie label trying to be a massive success, you know, being forced to be a massive success. Like, the record label wanted them, wanted them to be Foo Fighters, basically. And they're like, well, we well. Don't, we're <laughs> not the Foo Fighters. We don't want to be that. But they were constantly just like seeing a band, signing a band, seeing a band, signing a band, and then imposing on them. And I think it rolls back to the flexibility and malleability we spoke about earlier. The record label clearly saw that they could make this band whatever they wanted to be, but as that band wrote Phantoms themselves and knew that it was good, I'm sure they had faith in themselves to continue writing good music. So when the record label's like, we want you to be the Foo Fighters, or we want you to be Snow Patrol or the Fray or whatever, they're like, well, we've got other ideas. Here's the songs we want to do. And that just that just didn't fly. Like they even had fights over what the kind of first singles would be. The record company wanted different to be the song because it was so kind of soft and poppy, that real Snow Patrol, the fray type thing. Whereas they wanted So Contagious, which kind of was that combo of their punk side and their pop side. And if they couldn't get So Contagious, then they wanted Take Cover. So two much better songs in terms of um, fan appeal. And if you look at the numbers on Spotify, you can see a clear difference. So Contagious has 11.5 million listens, whereas Different has 2.5 million. But that's a significant difference. And the record label were like, no, Different should be the single. The band wanted So Contagious. And it's clear the band knew better, even if the record label didn't. But that just didn't, you didn't, that didn't cut it. They're giving you the money. They've given you the deal. You need to do what they say. Yeah, I just I just can't imagine being um, so creative enough where as a band you wrote an album as good as Phantoms and it really, really stood up, you know. It, it's, it's such a well-put-together <clears throat> first album and then to have the record label sort of trying to tell you how to do your job or how to be creative, that, that must have been incredibly difficult for a band who were probably more musicians first and then you know we're, we're trying to be this this product um put out by the record label you know imagine having someone try and kind of tell you how to be creative like it just doesn't really work that way hey like 
they're going to have some input. They're the ones that have put the money behind it. They're the ones that have, you know, backed you um, and, and giving you these opportunities. But when it comes to the actual art, I guess, behind it, outside of all the noise of promotion and photo shoots and style and all this sort of stuff, but the actual art, the actual song, you've got to listen to the band. You've got to listen to the musicians that are writing that stuff. They've, I would say, you know, come on, nine times out of ten, they're going to know better, <laughs> surely. And it was clear that over time the external pressures, you know, from the, the leaked release, the record label not agreeing with what the single should be, created inner turmoil in the band. And I listened to a podcast with the members and – it's really clear that there was high tension between them. And one of the things that really stood out to me was they'd get off stage and Christian, the lead guitarist, would berate other members for missing a note. And he would like have time stamps basically in his mind about, oh, you missed that B flat in the second verse of, of So Contagious. And that's what the members were walking off stage to. So they'd play this great show. They'd feel amazing. They'd perform incredibly. They'd walk off and it's like, oh, hey, man, you fucked that up. And it would just create tension and they wouldn't talk to each other. And just, it's pretty obvious that something like that could be easily brushed to the side if everything's going well. But with all the pressure on the band, all the external factors, everything that was going wrong, and then all of a sudden you're fighting with each other, it makes sense that these dudes did not talk to each other for like a decade after they broke up. <laughs> yeah, like that that's huge, isn't it? Like uh, we've watched... Um, you know, especially leading up to doing this pod, we've watched a lot of live clips. Um, and there, there, there's a fair bit on YouTube that you can get around if you're interested. Um, and I'd say for the most part, one of the tighter live bands, um, that were of that, of that era. So imagine, you know, they would know that they were pretty good. They would know that the sound they're putting out to their fans, that their live shows was good. It was worth coming to watch. And then to have one of their own bandmates, you know, not not some industry dickhead or not someone, you know, at a magazine giving them a bad review for a live show, like one of their own bandmates taking them backstage and saying, hey, you missed this, you fucked up that, that could be better. And you're there going, fuck, did you look at the crowd? They were loving that. They were they were into us, man. Like, And then, you know, we, we talk a bit about, you know, probably a slight lack of stage presence and charisma and, and just that general you know, it factor that, you know, we wanted bands to have, they potentially did come across not quite like that on stage. They're probably too fucking scared to not make a mistake. It's, you know, like counting out the beats, watching my fingers every note. You can tell they were really serious. Like they took it, they took themselves really seriously. Yeah. Yeah. They, it, it comes across that way. Um, so that, that would be tough to have that on, like playing the live show, surely that's, is meant to be potentially the most fun part of being in a band. Like recording can be fun, but it's also tedious and long-winded. You know, any a band of that scale, you know, having to do promo shit was probably a bit of a chore and not really within their normal personality to be sitting down and, you know, having these chats for magazines and whatever. But playing live, that's that's in your sweet spot. That's when you actually get to be your most creative self and be on a stage, have your fans cheer and woohoo for you and um yeah like taking it that seriously and and obviously some of that pressure came from the record label you know they wanted this band to be you know we've heard they wanted them to be fucking as big as the Foo Fighters or on that kind of scale so 
like Christian, I guess, you know, he's going to, he's going to cop it a bit now looking back, it's been a bit of the jerk of the band and, and he probably was, but he probably was listening to what the, the record label was saying. And he's like, okay, well, if we do want to be as big as they believe we can be, these are the things that matter. We have to be, you know, 100% tight, no mistakes. Think about some of the best bands you've seen live. It's not about perfection. Like I think about like Let Live, that's more about the performance. That's more about Jason climbing what he can and jumping on what he can and smashing what he can. Um, the Mars Volta and at the drive-in, just sometimes the chords were wrong because they were just so into it. Thursday where there's bung notes being hit. Like who do you think about that you've seen live? And, it, you know, it's not about perfection. It's about enjoyment. Yeah, well, I, I am someone who, <laughs> who often does uh, I'm, I'm quite critical of bands live. Like I want it usually to sound, um, you know, as close to the record as possible. But when I think of shows that I've had the most fun at and really enjoyed watching the band, it's more like Under Oath, um, Bring Me the Horizon. You know, they're two that come to mind and not not stadium rock Bring Me the Horizon, early days Bring Me the Horizon, when Ollie couldn't even get through one line in a verse without needing to take a breath and, and couldn't really scream all that well live, but they were just fucking in your face, intensely loud, you know, like crackling through the speakers, but you were just like, these guys are sick and they're going mental on stage and I'm in, I'm all in. I couldn't care really what it sounds like. So you have shows where you, where you obviously do, like I've seen Sigaroz live a couple of times and you just want that, you just want everyone in the crowd to shut the fuck up and listen and just enjoy it to be as close to yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you've got other bands where you're just like, I just want to enjoy the spectacle. I just want to enjoy what you, what what a group of, of people on stage are going to bring me to get me excited and entertained. And whether it's, you know, riddled with some errors and some things here and there, it won't really matter because um, you'll just entertain the pants off me. So yeah, they're, they're probably some of the standout live acts for me. Quality. Let's do the quiz. People of all ages, this is the quiz. There'll be questions. There'll be answers. There are no prizes. But this is the quiz. Acceptance reformed after a decade of practically not talking to each other, and a lot can change in the 10 years following a band breakup. So I'm going to ask you what each member was doing at the time the band decided to reform. I had named this segment Where Are They Now, but it should really be called Where Were They Then? So I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you the band member. You mentioned you didn't know their name, so you're probably going to struggle with this one too, but oh yeah, let's learn through quizzing. So they got, they got back together in 2015, was it? 2016? When did they get back together? They got back together in 2015 and started playing it in 2016, I, if I recall correctly. Okay. So a good, a good, yeah. Okay. So a good decade after, after Phantoms. All right. So guitarist Kalen Cloyd, was he an arborist? Was he a milkman or was he a guitar tech for Fallout Boy? Oh, I imagine where he would want to be, which is probably being a guitar tech for Fallout Boy. Um, 
but I think I think one of the guitarists did end up joining Amberlin and maybe is even still in Amberlin or credited as being in that band. I'm not sure if it was this guy or not. So I'm going to rule out the Fallout Boy thing. I think he was an arborist out and about cutting down trees. That's what he's up to. Incorrect. He was actually a milkman. The official description I found was that uh, Kalen Cloyd drove a wholesale milk route. So I translated that to milkman. That's milkman, man. Like that's weird because I didn't think we had milkmen in twenty fifteen. Hey, hey, shout out to Frank Egan. Oh, Frank Egan, Paul's milk, <laughs> rocking it still. Um, he might be driving buses now, I think. But yeah, definitely uh, did not get that one. All so. right. So yes, Kalen <laughs> Cloyd was a milkman at the time. Acceptance got back together. So you're zero from one. All right, singer Jason Veener was he a car salesman, a car show model? Or a car insurance salesman. Oh my god! Oh, so boring. Um, <laughs> which is it? Which is interesting because I I, I did read a little a uh, little excerpt from a um from an interview where the band talked about the breakup and talked about how um it was Jason Jason yep yeah yep um Jason just wanted to go and live a very boring normal life. He didn't want um, to do the band thing anymore. And they were weirdly like, um, they were weirdly like saying like, you know, our amazing front man, all these things, but also at the same time, dissing him real hard by leaving. That was in the official do... statement, wasn't it? And it felt yeah, a little passive aggressive. <laughs> Super passive aggressive. Our amazingly like, yeah, beautiful, want... wonderful, talented front man, Jason is fucking off and leaving us the asshole. <laughs> yeah. Going to do live a very, I think they even said a very boring, mediocre life. Or yeah, something. there was like it was a weird adjective. It was a real to describe knock. It, it yeah. was a stab, and and finally, it was written by Christian, who we've already spoken about, was a bit of a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Bit of a jerk. So to give me these three options, uh, I don't know. Maybe Christian was right, but uh, <laughs> let's see. So we got. Car salesman, car insurance guy, or a car model. What's a yes. car model? Like, like um, when you the go one that to... says, like, do you come with the car? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you can go to car shows and see, like, you know, what a Toyota releasing in 2022 kind of thing. And, like, you you go to, like, the exhibition center and all the different car companies have their cars there and they'll have attractive-looking people handing out pamphlets and giving them information. Okay, yeah. He might pass as being um, attractive, but I think he was quite boring so i don't think anyone's buying a car for that dude let's go car insurance dude oh uh, well you're zero from two he was a car oh, no. salesman and <laughs> on deeper digging he there's an interview where he talks about that and he really tries to downplay the car sales aspect he's like oh well you know i i run a car dealership so over the last 10 years i've, I've done lots of different things it's like man just own it you're a car salesman it's yeah. fine you sell cars man that's fine no matter what your role in the company was the ultimate end goal is to sell cars so, yeah. All right, zero from two. Let's see how you go with this one. So, guitarist Christian McElhenney, was he the bass player for the receiving end of Sirens, owner and operator of a pub named Max Bar, or the guitarist oh. for Anne Boleyn? Now, one of, I do know that one of them went on to be the guitarist of Anne Boleyn. It would surprise me if it was, this is the bass player we're now talking about? This is guitarist Christian McElhenney. This is the guitarist. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to say then that Christian was the one that ended up joining Anne Boleyn. That is correct. Yeah. One from three. My man, you're on the board. I'm on the board. And the owner and operator of a pub named Max Bar is actually Rob McElhenney of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> okay, next one. Drummer Garrett Lunsford. 
At the time of acceptances reforming, was he a school teacher, a school principal, or a school counsellor? Oh, wow. Um, as, uh, as our good friend Mark put it, uh, at times an inhuman drummer. Um, some of the beats on that album are insane. So a little bit disappointing that he didn't continue his career as a drummer. Uh, so let's go with counsellor. I think he might have been a counsellor. You are correct. He worked in student services at a high school and I believe still does. So, um, oh, Sounds like a good guy. Probably a good opportunity to talk about. So Garrett Lunsford actually wasn't the drummer on Phantoms. He was the drummer prior to Phantoms. They got a new drummer. And it's a really interesting Ooh, okay. read when you learn about this because basically just before Garrett was kicked out of the band, he came out as gay. And there's a really interesting kind of reflection upon this by the band, again, by Christian. Here we go. He's rearing his ugly head again. They very much, the way they try and package the fact that he was out of the band as soon as he came out was like, oh, no, that was just, yeah, he came out and he left the band. They're two separate things. And while that might seem strange, we've reconciled, and so there's no need to talk about that anymore. And I, I don't <laughs> like that because... In today's day and age, we still have people being discriminated against for their sexual orientation. And it's really disappointing that a band who have clearly learned lessons and grown and understand that, you know, you can make mistakes and heal from them because Garrett is back in the band in their new phase. What I think you do have an obligation to tell people about what you learned, what you got wrong and how you got to that. It might seem like it's personal. Oh, no, you know, that was for us to deal with. But you were a band. You were a major label band. You kicked someone out because they were gay and you've clearly reconciled with them. Tell people about that because there are still people that need those lessons. There are still people that need to talk about that. There are still people who need to heal their bad ideas about the way people live their lives. Oh, definitely. What, what an opportunity they could have and still could have because I know they're still playing now and you know releasing i think they released something last year but you know what an opportunity they could have there to tell that story and put themselves out there you know be a bit vulnerable and be like hey we got this wrong we were complete assholes in this situation however you know we have now um you know apologized we've reconciled we're we're moving on as a as a band we've been forgiven because we reached out or whatever it is because as you said there's a, there's a lot of people who, you know, this is this is 15 years ago we're, we're talking, you know, and not that it was right then and it's not right now, you know, it was these things are always wrong, but people should have an opportunity to learn and become better people, of which it seems like on the surface at least these guys may have been able to do. So instead of sweeping it under the under the cover and saying, you know, yeah, nothing to see here. It was two unrelated incidences. You just say, nah, come on, man, just own it and say, yeah, we were assholes and we treated our friend like shit when he was going through something that wouldn't have been easy for him. And instead of supporting that person through that, we kicked him to the curb. You know, tell that, as you said, tell that story. It was it was interesting, you know, last week reading up a little bit more about, about Buddy from Census Fail, and he's someone who has, I'm not going to use the word struggled because in his own head, I'm sure it wasn't as much of a struggle, but he's, sexual orientation has often come up as being, you know, more of a grey area. He even himself said he sits somewhere in the middle between being gay and being straight. And some stories leaked about him, um, you know, having, you know, having relationships with with people um, who maybe weren't 
um, female or maybe didn't identify as female at the time. And he copped a bit of a bit of a bad rap for it at the time, but he, he owned it. And maybe, you know, he was the front man of the band and he was really the only thing going for census fail. So it was potentially easier for him to continue to be in a band at the time, even when this noise and criticism was going on about his, his sexual orientation. Whereas this, you know, this poor member of acceptance, you know, comes out and says, you know, I'm, I'm gay and, you know, what of it? And, you know, gets booted from the band right when they're about to launch into being, you know, popular and make a career from it. That's just awful to hear. I, I, I find it very interesting that they were able to, um, to reconcile and become a band again. The irony of their band name, Acceptance. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, there you go. And on that, just to wrap that up, we still live in a world where these are things people very much struggle with. In 2013, Jason Collins was the first NBA player to come out as gay, and he was out of the league the next season. And there has not yeah. been another player uh, to come out since then. So we very much still live in an age where it's a problem for a lot of people. And you only have to look at the vitriol in the social media comments when any mainstream source relating to sports or news or politics talks about this as an issue. You know, we've still got people asking for, you know, where's my straight day? I want straight day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you get that 365 days a year, man, you'll be right. Yeah. And you have since the day you were born, you'll be fine. (laughs) Okay. You're two from four right now. So you got that Garrett Lunsford's a school counselor. You got that uh, Christian McElhenney is in Amberlin and See, two from four, this is your deciding point, and this is about bass player Ryan Zwielhofer. Now, I couldn't find out what his job is or was, so this one is instead, what is his main hobby? Okay? Ooh. Curling, craft beer, or mountain biking? <laughs> All very uh, 2021 hobbies, hey? Yeah, Far he's out. bald, Curling. he has a big beard, and I know that doesn't help at all. No, it, well, I can see him in all three of these places. And <laughs> exactly. I'm stereotyping, and I don't give a shit. <laughs> but uh, let's go with fuck. Big Beard used to be in a band, Craft Beer. Oh, be. it's actually oh, mountain no. biking. So two from five, not so bad. And we learned a little bit about what Acceptance were doing when they got back together. So as we mentioned earlier, this record meant a lot to a lot of people. So let's hear what another friend has to say about that. Here's Greblo. Fun fact, the number one song um, for the day that Phantoms was released was actually 50 Cent Candy Shop. And the day after Phantoms release was still Candy Shop, which, you know, is pretty crazy um, if you consider how good that Acceptance album actually is. My favourite tracks uh, might be The Letter or maybe different. I know it's pretty hard to say. Um, it's kind of like that Nora Jones self-title album, if you've heard that. It's just hit from start to finish. So if our listeners weren't getting enough Australian <laughs> accent in this show, if we weren't kind of ramping it up enough, there's Greblo with a little bit of extra Aussie ochre for you. Oh, yeah, there it is. Nice and twangy and slangy and some very enlightening uh, comments from, from our good friend Greblo. So thank you. Thank you very much for that contribution. So let's wrap it up by just talking a little bit about the fact that, yeah, Acceptance got back together five or six years ago, um, saw them live in 2017, which we played a little clip from earlier. Um, But they've also released two new records. And perhaps 
it, this is a case study in a band maybe just wrapping it up when you did. There probably wasn't any real need for them to come back. I remember when we saw them live in 2017, they made the mistake of alternating songs. So they'd play a song from Phantoms, the crowd would love it. Then they'd play a song from the new album, no one cared. Song from Phantoms, oh, we're back in it. Oh, song from the <laughs> new album. And literally 10 songs set, maybe eight songs set. And at no point could you ever get into it. Because you're like, yeah, I, I love In Too Far. And then it's a new song. It's like, all right, cool. I'll just wait four minutes. Yeah, it's permanent. This is sick. And then, oh, yeah, new song. I'll wait four minutes. And it was just a pretty pretty bad set. I mean, the Phantom songs were amazing, but the new stuff did not grab me. The crowd was not into it. And they've got a new single out right now called Midnight. And it is bad, man. It's like <laughs> they've drawn on inspiration from bands like kind of U2, Fun, Imagine Dragons, and it's only got 4,000 views in 10 months. And I think it just speaks to oh, ouch. you guys had an amazing debut record. You disappeared. It was great for you to come back and play the oldies, but we probably didn't need the new stuff. Yeah, I think that's where bands just have that opportunity to play the old album in its entirety. We've seen a lot of bands in recent years come and do this, do tours where they literally will just tour the album. You know, we went and saw Bringers, um, no, no, Under Oath, sorry, um, play two um, albums in one night, which uh, in their entirety from start to finish with all the all the little, you know, bits and bobs from the album that you remember basically are live listening to of that. They could have done that with Phantoms and then maybe found other opportunities in the set to play some new stuff and just really make it known that, okay, now we've played Phantoms in its entirety. We'll give you a little taster of the new album and then we'll, and then maybe come back and do an encore of two more songs from Phantoms or something. You know, there were, there were clever ways to give what the audience want um, by, but also touching on that we are still recording stuff. But it, it made me wonder, Obviously, there were there were some issues within the band and and some decisions made after Phantoms to not continue. But now, coming back ten years later and then going, hey, actually, no, now we're ready to release another album. I think they've released two new albums since they reformed, um, and they want a tour, and they're still together. It's like uh, I hate to just say it, but you missed the boat. You had your chance. Everything was put in place for you to release a follow-up album and tour the world then I know you know we're never going to know fully exactly why it was difficult enough for the band to completely disband for so long we've heard a little bit potentially why but I don't care anymore like I don't think anyone cares anymore there's there's too much new music too many new artists coming out who are paying their dues and putting out really interesting cool new stuff and to have a band from 15 years ago be like, uh, we didn't really care then enough, but now we do. It's just not enough for me. And, yeah, I had a little listen to, to I think, the 2017, the, the first um, new album they bought out, and oh, I could barely get through it, man. It was just... It's boring. It was just... It's so boring. There was none of that kind of fun poppy element to it which we talked about in phantoms where it's just kind of the coming together of multiple worlds um melodic and rock and a pop and punk all of this perfectly mixed in to create such a cool album and i know the sound slightly dated now a little bit but i don't think it's dated that much actually phantoms really 
has pretty well stood up. I could imagine rock bands and that releasing that sound now and, and holding up. But instead, as you said, they go down this more U2, Imagine Dragons, stadium, atmospheric, boring rock sound. And it's just, yeah, it's not for me. It's, it's that romanticism of the other. It's like, oh, if only they had still been around, what would they have sounded like? Well, this is a band where we know what they would have sounded like. And in, inter- in interviews, they talk about how that 2017 record has some songs that they wrote back in 2006. And you're like, well, all right, well, that's 11 years ago now, man. I don't know if this is what I still need in my life. So, yeah, they, they missed the boat. They had, as you said, they had their chance. Yeah, yeah, they had their chance and uh, I don't care now and um, I don't know if they're going to stay together and continue to release music, but what do you say, 4,000 4, views in almost a year on their newest single, then they're not going anywhere. You know, what they might be able to do is, is play Phantoms in its entirety for us again. You know, maybe I'd I would pay be, money to see that again. Yeah, yeah, I think if they came to Australia and that's what the reason was for, I'd probably, you know, I'd pay 50 bucks and go see that. So we had a company reach out to us after listening to last week's episode. We were talking about the height of fashion. So we have a new sponsor this week. These are not ordinary hats. They're pierced hats. Pierced hats. This winter, pierced hats are the perfect way to let people know you're a little bit edgier than anybody else simply because you put spikes through the brim of your hat. You're completely hardcore. The do-it-yourself pierced hat kit comes with everything you need to pierce your own hat, including brim piercer, template, and an array of badass looking spikes that lets everybody know you won't be messed with. You won't be messed with. You're the dude with the tood because you have pierced your hat. Hat sold separately. Thank you very much, pierced hats. Thank you, pierced hats. The uh, DIY pierced hats kit now available in all good stores. Oh my goodness, that's fantastic. Um, so we <laughs> we have a little bit of housekeeping, um, you know, as the show goes on and we're spending time just shooting the shit and talking. Obviously, sometimes we might get our facts wrong a little bit. So there's a couple of things I want to clarify. In the Boys Night Out episode, I spoke about their Black Dogs EP. I got the year wrong and the amount of tracks on it. So it is a 2016 EP with six tracks. So... I, my apologies to all the Canadians I upset with that information. And also, I spoke last week about Raiders of the Lost Ark having guns replaced with walkie-talkies, and it was actually the movie E.T. So there's my housekeeping. How's yours? Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I did uh, stumble last week on the census fail uh, episode. Um, was talking about Let It Enfold You and owning that album and the cover not looking super familiar to me i thought it was the uh the guy in the astronaut suit floating um and that's actually a brand new album um deja intendu i believe is what it's, yeah, it's called. actually Something deja super ones. nintendo uh that's super nintendo but when i did go have a look the, the color scheme across those two records was very similar so i'll give myself a i'll give myself a partial credit but um no i do apologize for anyone any alert listener that picked up on that uh, error. So that's all for Violence and Sunshine this week. You can find us on Instagram at Violence and Sunshine. Email us at violenceandsunshinepod at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Paul. And I'm Nick. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, nothing is permanent.